Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today I have Andrew Butt. He's the CEO at Enable. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Phil. It's great to be here. Andrew, could you tell me a little bit about what problem does your company solve? Sure. So we're working with a lot of finance professionals and also buyers and sellers in the supply chain. So distributors, retailers, manufacturers, buying groups, all these kinds of companies that work together mainly to get products and goods to end customers. Those are the sorts of people we work with. So it's specifically like the supply chain of moving things around. For example, in the COVID, we had an issue of supply chain. We're not actually getting our stuff. It's that the space that you're working in? Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's mostly physical goods. It does apply to non-physical goods as well. So we have some use cases there, but the majority is that physical goods. And that represents about 75% or more of global trade. It's still a fairly big, fairly big industry. Nice. And how does your software help the industry? Yeah, sure. So what we're really finding is increasingly these companies in the supply chain, so again, distributors, manufacturers, and so on, are working more and more closely together to serve customers because customer expectations are at an all-time high and continuing to increase. And so it's really important to partner together to meet those customer needs. But when you look at the technology and the type of collaboration that's available in the supply chain, it's been really neglected up until now. It's been very, very data technology. So we started very specifically on helping those companies collaborate on trading agreements and incentives and rebates in the supply chain, which I can talk more about. But the broader vision is really helping companies in the supply chain to work together to serve customers better. That's awesome. And how did you come up with the idea? So came up with the idea when I met my co-founder and him and I are both pilots, we're both flying enthusiasts. And so we were both learning to fly and that's how we met. This is going back many, many years now. And he was running a very successful distribution company in the UK, which is now actually the largest distribution company in the UK for brands like Procter & Gamble and Unilever and Gillette and Colgate and so on. And so we really got talking about this topic and about how he was fulfilling a critical function in the supply chain and still is to this day. But again, there was a bit of a disconnect from a technical perspective between him and his manufacturers and him and his customers. So that's really where the whole thing started. Okay, so he was this supply chain expert and, and you were the product expert? Like, walk me through that. So, yes, yeah, so he absolutely uh, was the supply chain expert and understood distribution and also business. And then I was really the kind of technical programming guy and I was building applications and building software, building web applications in the early days. This is like 2000s we're talking about now. And I also had a real interest and passion for business in general, but my real expertise was really building applications. Yeah, that's a great combination that I see works all the time when you merge the industry expert with the tech expert. And together, one person understands the technology, one person understands the problem that the industry have that has been suffering and then you guys go and solve it together. That's definitely a combination that she works all the time. 
So before we keep going to your stories, let's talk a little bit about airplanes here. So what airplane do you fly? I'm a pilot myself. Really? Well, I actually started with helicopters, believe it or not. And it was, I like both from an early age, but I just kind of, by luck, really stumbled into a flying school. That was a helicopter flying school. So I learned on the Robinson R22 and then progressed to the 44 and other helicopters. I did do my fixed wing later as well. So I trained mostly on a kind of Cessna 152, PA-28, those sorts of, those sorts of aircraft. But how about you? Nice. I fly a Sirius SR-22. That's very nice. Modern machine. Glass cockpit. Glass cockpit. Yeah, I got it about two years ago. It's been amazing. And it's cool for me to get my head out of my business and fly. And like, I really have a lot of ideas when I'm flying. And yes. It's just so amazing. How does that work for you? Like having a hobby like that and going back to your... To be honest, it's not very active. So I was very active in the UK for many years and then I moved over to San Francisco three years ago just over three years ago and been so absorbed in the business and the business has been growing so fast that I've kind of really neglected that so it's on hold for the time being but I'll get back to it yeah you should too okay let's go back to the company origin story we can talk more about airplanes offline <laughs> so how did you guys fund the company so initially we were really providing services so we started the company together really as a service provider and we were building custom software for companies and they were obviously paying us to do that. So we were kind of profitable from virtually day one, which is a typical approach in the UK is to kind of start very small and grow organically and you know just, just kind of grow steadily. So, but then really from the profits from that company, we then really wanted to build a product which could solve a lot of these problems we were talking about. And so we kind of did that on the side and we built kind of SaaS platform on the side with the funding we were getting from the bespoke software customers. So that was the very early funding. That's awesome. And how long did it take for you guys to build the MVP or the first version? Like now you're doing two business, so you couldn't focus, but of course it's amazing. You could fund yourself. So welcome to the process. So I think it probably took about a year to build the kind of MVP and get something, get our first customer onto some kind of basic product. Nice. And how did you find your first few customers? So originally, it was very much kind of recommendation, word of mouth. So my co-founder was obviously very well connected in the supply chain in the UK and had good connections to manufacturers and other distributors and so on. So we had a lot of kind of word of mouth. And even through the flying school, again, we said we wouldn't talk about that, didn't we? But as you know, you get lots of interesting people learning to fly and they're typically business people that have interesting businesses. So a lot of it was just the local network of businesses that we met. And then we quickly were getting referrals and word of mouth nice and, and you guys stay focused just in the uk europe area or do you start to try to serve companies all over the world like yeah so we initially were just in the uk but then after we launched our product and we started to kind of get indexed on google we were starting to get inbound from the us for example and one of our very first us customers you know literally just found us on google and phoned up and i remember they really liked the product but didn't like the fact that we weren't in the US. And in the end, they reluctantly kind of signed up because they said, we just can't find anything in the US which can do what your product does. That's weird. Like, you'd think people wouldn't care where you guys are. It's just a software that solves a problem. Is that something that you saw happening over and over again? That people want to get a software from the United States? Oh, no, I think so, because we are going back a few years now. So we're probably talking about, say, 2016 or something. And 
we weren't, you know, we were providing support from the UK only. So that again, the time difference, for example, was was one thing. And then, you know, just silly things like currency and other slight differences between the US and the UK. So we were kind of saying that we could provide all the support and, and we could do, but it wasn't a perfect situation for customers because, like I say, at least a five hour time difference. Makes sense. And is that why you moved to San Francisco? Yeah, so we kind of did quite a good job for a while doing it all remotely. And we got to probably 25 customers of which maybe, I don't know, eight or something of that 25 was in the US. And that was all just from the UK. So that was how we did it for a couple of years. But then we really saw how big the opportunity was and how this is something where we could build a category leading product and we could define a category. And to do that, we would need to invest on a much, much bigger scale and just doing it in one location and funding it ourselves would be far too slow. So that was really the point where I said, we need to be in the US, we need to set up a team here. Um, I need to be here to really lead that. And also we need to raise raise capital as well. Makes sense. So was it that decision hard, the decision to move, the decision to raise capital? How was making that decision? It was just like easy. Yeah, well, I remember I used to belong to a group called Vistage, which is a group of CEOs who meet every month and help each other with their businesses. And it's a really good group. And I was with those group of people now, I think probably mid 2018, so call it June 2018. And I did a pitch to the group and I said, we've got this stable kind of profitable services business on the left here. And then on the right, we've got this product, which has huge potential, but, you know, will require a lot of funding to really get it off the ground. And what do you think I should do? You know, should I, it's quite painful to wind down the services business, but and the feedback around the room unanimously was, this is a huge opportunity. There's no other product like this. You need to wind down that business. Also, you need to raise capital. And by the way, if you want to raise capital, you need to go to California because they know how to do it there. <laughs> so that was June 2018. And I remember I came home to my wife that evening and I said, how do you fancy moving to California? And she said, yep, let, let's do it. Let's do it tomorrow. Reality, it did take a bit longer than that for me to get organized, but that was the start of that story. That's awesome. And it's great that she was so supportive. And then you guys have any kids to make the transition or just you and her? It's just the two of us. We do have animals. And I often tell the story that she didn't want to move the animals by plane because it was a very long haul flight from where we were living to the West Coast. So we actually came by ship, can you believe, with our three animals. Oh, whoa. I wish took seven nights. So that was another adventure. That's awesome. You guys did old school. <laughs> Let's go by. Exactly. See. Okay, so and how was like the process of raising money? I mean, I imagine you come with a business that's already making some money and you have a problem figure out because you're running for a while. Maybe that made it a little bit easier to raise money or not. Tell me about this story. Yeah, I think it probably didn't make it easier because we were just a strange kind of animal when you looked at our business. It wasn't something which was familiar in Silicon Valley of someone that started something bootstrapping and then kind of providing services and generating some cash, but then on the side, it was a bit hard for people to understand. And as I say, we have nobody here. We had no employees in America at all. And the whole kind of approach and culture in the UK, especially going back to, you know, this is going back to say 2019 now, was quite different. So it really took some visionary investors to see what we had and see through some of those strange kind of aspects and to realize it was, this is a really good thing to invest in. So it was certainly an interesting process. I learned a lot, you know, knocking on doors in late 2019 and kind of saying to investors, I'm on a tourist visa, <laughs> but don't worry, I'm going to be here and I'll be, it will be good. And, you know, it was quite a process, 
and then we didn't really have a US entity and that's what the investors wanted to invest in. So that initial kind of fundraise, which was the Series A, did take probably two or three months to kind of create the company and, you know, set the whole thing up. Makes sense. And how much did you raise in the Series A and who led the investment? Yep. So the Series A, we raised $14 million in total. Okay. And that was led by Menlo Ventures. Oh, that's amazing. You guys did very well. So it was a little bit challenging, but did very well. And so how you guys deployed that money later and, and how did you use that money to keep growing your SaaS? Yeah. So we really had to hire a local team because, you know, at the time, again, there was nobody at all in the US. So, and we had a really good kind of product and engineering function in the UK and the product was working well. And we already had those handful of US customers. So it was really about the go-to-market side and hiring that talent and having it local. So that was the main kind of use of funds in the first year or so. Got it. What did you learn figuring out the go-to-market process and trying to scale? What did you learn in the process? Yeah, I mean, I think the first year, uh, so we closed the Series A in February 20, okay? And I was kind of taking early steps. I had kind of a revenue leader who was really part-time and he was very good, very experienced in the UK, but, but was part-time. And so he was helping me to hire those first few reps. And we were being quite cautious, you know, just sort of hiring a couple and ramping them and then another couple. And so we were going, you know, quite slowly. And of course, this was during the pandemic as well, during the lockdown. So it was a really strange time to think we're now spending a lot more money on hiring a lot more people and really, you know, just an unprecedented time in COVID. So things were quite kind of steady and, you know, not growing that fast. And I think a key point that I learned and something that happened is when I met the guy that became our head of revenue and his name is Jerry Bruner. And I met Jerry in late 2020. So let's say 10 months after we raised the Series A. And he really looked at what we had. He's a very experienced revenue leader, looked at what we had and said, this product market fit is so strong. The product is so good. We should go a lot faster here. We need to hire a lot more people, a lot more AEs. And you know, we need to hire the whole infrastructure in go-to-market. So revenue enablement, revenue operations, solutions consulting, you know, the, the whole you know, BDRs. And this is going to be a big function and it's an expensive function, but this is what's required and this will deliver very strong growth. So I think to answer your question, I'm talking in a long-winded way here. Um, I think the amount of kind of infrastructure and investment and team that's required to really kind of achieve liftoff was greater than I expected. That's cool. But that's a cool story to hear because many times I see that on my consulting firm. I see on people that are interviewing the podcast. People raise Series A, but they don't actually have product market fit yet. And then they're struggling to find product market fit. They're spending their money in different ways. So like you raise and you really had product market fit. So now you could really put the money to work and you could bring people like your head of revenue that knew how to make this scale. And I think that's, don't know if you did that, but it's not very common actually that companies that you're supposed to have product market fit in Series A, but a lot of founders that I speak with are like, oh yeah, we didn't have product market fit yet. And then we didn't, uh, we spent too much money because we didn't know where we were going. And then all the, the power behind to grow the product didn't generate any growth because it didn't have product market fit. And then we have to fix that, do another race. So like, talk to me about like, how much did you guys grow? I don't know how public you are with your numbers, but like, how much did you grow? Like when you put all those people behind, like where you were, and if you cannot tell me 
absolute numbers, maybe tell me person. Sure. I know, yeah, absolutely. So I can tell you a few things. So customer numbers, we, as I say, we were at about 25 customers when I arrived here in the US three years ago. And I could tell you, for example, I think by the end of 2020, I probably got to say 40, I think it was 43 or something, 43 customers. And that's when the new revenue leader joined. And then that year, we went from 43 to 105 customers. And then we went from 105 to about 250. So we've basically gone from 25 to 250 in three years. And when I say customers, these are the kind of major distributors and manufacturers who are subscribing to our service. They actually bring along all of their trading partners as well. And then many of those then also upgrade and become paying customers as well. So we've actually got, we're talking about tens of thousands of companies on the platform, but in terms of those core kind of beachhead customers, we went from 25 to 250 in three years. And then people, I think we had about 80 people when I arrived here in total, 80 people, they were all in the UK. And we're now at about 500. We're not quite there. We're like 485 or something, but we're still growing. So we'll be at 500 in the next couple of months. And what's the difference between being a CEO of an 80 people company and being a CEO of a 500 people company? Yeah, sure. I think in some ways, when well, I've got a really good team and some very strong kind of leaders who run big parts of the organization. So I have a chief operating officer, the revenue leader I refer to is, is actually president of all kind of field operations. And then I've got a really good CFO and others. So I still really try to spend time thinking about, you know, the vision, what we're solving for. I'm still talking with customers. And I'm not, you know, I've got some really good kind of managers in place to deal with, you know, managing a large group of people. I think what has changed is communicating internally is obviously a lot more important. So in the early days, I was just only communicating externally, really. So prospects, customers, investors, but now very regular kind of all hands meetings, team meetings, and kind of one-on-ones is really important. So that would be a big change. What do you say was harder, 0 to 80 or 80 to 500? I think the zero to 80 took a very long time because again, we were kind of bootstrapping and it was services as well. And we kind of pivoted and brought a lot of those services people across to the SaaS business. So that was quite a different period. Um, I think if one way of thinking about it is in terms of the fundraising, because we've also raised a series B and a series C, and I would say that A was the most difficult. So I think turning up here with a product, with a few customers and saying, yep, we started this in the UK, we're bootstrapped, but now we want to raise, you know, more than $10 million. That I think was really hard because we were completely kind of off the radar. You know, nobody knew we existed. As I say, we were, pattern recognition was off because we're, hang on, you know, what you, we didn't fit the normal pattern at all. So I think raising that series A and really flipping from that kind of bootstrapped company into it in the UK to a US based or US headquartered VC back company was really hard. But then actually with the series B and C, that the investors actually came to us. So they were both preempted. We were doing well at that point and we had some really good people that were recognizable as well. So I would say, you know, I know it's not quite the question you asked, but but the series B and the series C were actually easier than the series A. Yeah. So I guess you answer my question. As you start to get traction, things start to get easier, right? Like it's harder that first time getting, but traction come in, things start to get easier. So what is the first oh shit moment that comes to mind? from like running your company from now, from the beginnings to now? I think 
we have some very, very big customers that have massive scale, you know, huge scale requirement with our products because we're processing every single transaction, every purchase, every sale in every location. And some of our customers have thousands of locations and millions of products. And so we've engineered it to cope with massive scale. But along the way, as you can imagine, we have hit some bottlenecks. We'll kind of win a new customer and then it transpires the shape and size of exactly, you know, their setup is different to what you saw before. And then we can run into, or we did run into a scale challenge. And that is obviously really big because when you've got lots of users who are scheduled to be trained and be using a system and they've kind of switched off their old system and there's some some challenges, that's really, you know, not great. So we resolve those and it actually really helped us because we use that learning to raise the bar even further. And now there's just nobody else in the market that can deal with the volume that we can in the space that we're in. But that definitely was the source of stress, shall we say. <laughs> For sure. And what is like a very smart decision that you made in the early days? I mean, I think the decision eventually to focus and, you know, wind down the services business and just be very, very focused on building a product which had quite a narrow scope. And we talk about having the deepest capability in our product. So it's actually, you know, it could be broader. And often the feedback from investors, for example, is would you do you need to make it cover more areas? But we know there's so much market in what we have. We want to go deep. So I think that decision to really focus deeply and turn off other things and you know transition to a fast growing SaaS business was a great decision and and as you said the timing was probably good because we had got that core product market fit by the time we did it i guess i could look back and say should we have done that sooner but probably on balance you know to your comment it was good timing to already have some proven live customers for sure and how about a blunder a decision that you made they were like oh man that wasn't the best one i mean one thing that would just be similar is just the timing of that pivot really and you know, how long we continued because we didn't just shut off the old business on day one because that would have obviously been really bad for customers of that business. So we did take time to do a transition. I think that was, it probably went on for a bit longer than it should have done. So that comes to mind. I don't know if that's a big blunder. I mean, I think we've been very fortunate so far and, you know, with the decisions we've made by design and also partly by, by luck have served us well. So I mean, recently, of course, the Silicon Valley bank situation, and we were fortunate that we actually had banks in every country. So Canada, UK, and also Australia. And also we had a lot of our, we had most of our capital in secure kind of funds that wasn't just in it, like in a checking account. But um, SVB, who I have a lot of time for, by the way, and they've, they've been great. That was our main US checking account. And so, you know, a lot of companies were really worried about how to make payroll that Monday. And we were okay in the end because we were able to root funds from other places. But, you know, that's an example of, I think, what could, I know some companies had all of their funds there and, you know, that would have been a checking account. So that could have been painful. Yeah. I think we sometimes just don't see the risks that we don't see, right? Who would think that a bank that big could fail? So, but you mentioned how, like, the decisions that you made overall have been good decisions. What's your background? That's not like your first business, right? Like... You had a service business that turned into a SaaS before that. Tell me a little bit about your like journey as an entrepreneur to get to this company. Yeah, I mean, I've always been kind of fascinated by business and by providing services to companies and people. So I started my first thing when I was kind of 14 years old and I was just helping company, helping business people, you know, small businesses with their IT. And I did that and generated revenue from you know very early age. 
I left school at an early age and compressed five days of education into a Saturday morning. And so that's all I've ever done. I've never, you know, I've never had a job working as an employee for a company. I've just always done my own thing. So self-employed in the early days, I guess, then very, very small scale until I met my co-founder. And then we started at that services business, which again was for over a number of years. So we met in the early 2000s and we kind of built that together over a number of years providing different software to different companies. And, you know, along the way, for example, we actually went into business with one of our customers. So we built software for them. We ended up investing and taking a stake in that business and becoming directors. And then that was sold to private equity. And so, you know, there were things along the way where we just learned and I learned a lot about business um, over, over a period of many years. I believe that when do we are starting a SaaS business, like a high growth a SaaS business is going to lose a lot of money like yours. To increase your odds of success, it's better that you have done other business before. Well, of course, there's the outliers, but most times I see the successful founders, that's not their first business because SaaS is very, very complicated. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think that is fair. And I think, again, my background was very, very scrappy. And again, as you know, when you bootstrap, you have to be so careful. And I remember you know, our runway was tiny. We were, I was very much thinking about how can I pay the payroll this month, you know, and, and how do I pay the tax bill this month? And that was just normal. That was just how I grew up. And I remember if we had, say, two or three months, that would be incredible, be really incredible. And someone told me in the early days, you know, if you told a VC that you have three months of cash, that means I'm about to run out of cash. But for me, three months was a huge amount. of. I mean, so I was very frugal and very scrappy. And you're right, now we've kind of transitioned from that mode into a burn mode and now, frankly, into a fairly high burn mode because we've been really, really driving top line growth. We do have that strong product market fit. We do have strong retention and it's getting that balance because I've got people in the business, really great experienced SaaS leaders who have really pushed hard to invest and you know spend money and really drive growth. And I think if it was only that, it would be a crazy level of burn. And then because of my kind of bootstrapping days in the past, I've kind of pulled back somewhat and then hopefully we have a good balance. But to your point, if I hadn't got any of that and we just suddenly went from having no business to raising millions and millions of dollars from a VC, I think that could be dangerous. Yeah, because like you had experience dealing with money, right? Like by the time you got that 40 million hit your account, you had a lot of experience already managing resources and even being more careful with resources because you never had that many resources. But you probably, another thing that's super hard in business is hiring, right? Like hiring is so hard and it's your main job as a founder in the early days. You had experience hiring people too. So like when you go to hire, that wasn't many times when I ask people about the blunder, it's about, oh, I hired this and this person and it was a big mistake. But when you're ready, you're still, still going to be hard. But again, this is not the first time that you were doing that. Yeah, exactly. So if you could go back in time and meet yourself like the day you start this company and, and give yourself some advice, what would you tell for yourself? I mean, I think, again, it comes back to what I was saying on focus, which is, is you can never be too focused. So I think most of us are distracted and we have too much going on and we dilute ourselves too much. You know, it's just that's the human tendency. And it's really, I think, to be saying no a lot more and looking at how can we be experts and be just really, really good at a very small number of things. So I think we've, in the past, you know, I've taken things on and 
definitely we've had some of the successes I talked about, you know, growing the services business, investing in other business, selling it to private equity and so on, launching this SaaS company, which has been superb. But there's also been things along the way which didn't work. And I think some of that was just taking on too much. So my advice to myself would be just get real conviction about the thing that you're doing and go deep and go narrow. I think when I see early stage CEOs who talk about having multiple businesses, I was one of those. And it's, it's just not really, in hindsight, it's not really credible. I think if you can get to, if you can build a huge empire over 20, 30 years, and you can genuinely then have, you know, a number of companies that you define. Yeah, but that's very rare, I would say. It's very rare. Elon Musk springs to mind, <laughs> but there aren't many Elon Musk. Uh, so I think for most of us, we just are too diluted and just constantly reminding ourselves what is the focus and how can we make the focus even more narrow. That's a great advice for, for yourself and for, and for other founders into this show. It is so hard to find the balance and not to go too many directions. There's always the next shine object, right? Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. And so... Could, could you get like more specific about like some decision that you look back and you're like, I was spending too much time doing X and I should be doing Y? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just different businesses. So I'd launched different initiatives, different kind of operating companies doing different things. And they, they, some of them were just quite diverse. There wasn't much common ground. And in hindsight, that was just too much of a distraction trying to mode switch because you're almost, you look at the calendar and every meeting, you're completely mode switching from one to the next. And I found that by being entirely focused on what we do in Enable and keeping the scope of Enable narrow, then you can stay in that same mode all day long. And I think, again, just attention is a huge human kind of quality if you can place your attention on one thing. So I think that would be my general feedback. In terms of spending time, then I always think about, you know, what am I really good at? What do I enjoy? And what does the business need? Those three things. And how can we make those things overlap? So Again, I'm naturally a very externally focused person. So I'm, again, I'm looking at, I'm talking to customers, prospects, speaking at events, talking to investors, you know, talking to my board and it's very external and I'm, you know, I'm traveling. That's where I think I can add value. Whereas if I was sitting in an office all day, for example, as a line manager, managing people and doing kind of one-on-ones all day long, you know, that would be not good use of time because it's not, it's not a strength. It's not something I could, I could I've got far better managers than me and it's not something I enjoy. So don't know if that helps at all. For sure. That's great advice. So how does the company look like today? Like if you say you raise a little bit more money, if you could say how much money you raised so far, where you guys are and what's your vision for the future? Sure. Yeah. So we've raised a total of $156 million of capital so far. And that's across the A, B and C. The, the Series C was 94 million and that closed in October. So you know, not that long ago. And, you know, we're really going long here and we're going big. And again, I guess part of the past experience of running smaller businesses has been good because those small businesses were good, again, profitable. It's almost like a lifestyle business. You know, we had a good time, <laughs> but they were never going to be huge because they were growing slowly. Whereas with this, the size of the market is massive and we've really got everything we need. We've got the right investors. We've got the right team. We've got the products. We've got the customers to really be the category leader in what we're doing. And so the goal is certainly to take the company public and to, to really become a fully kind of global company. And right now we're in US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and we're just opening in Europe, by the way. But, you know, we will be in say 30 countries, not five or six within three years. And so building that truly kind of global infrastructure to make sure we maintain this market leadership position and that we continue to really define the category is that's the kind of size of the ambition. That's amazing. How long do you think it's going to take until you guys go public? 
<laughs> I mean, I think the market is crazy at the moment, isn't it? It's really seeing, you know, what's going on in the stock market today and so on. So hard to say. And it's definitely not like a kind of goal I'm anchored to. I think an IPO is just part of the journey. It's really just raising funding. And But I think the other aspects of it are making the company better because to be kind of public company ready, all the systems and procedures and governance needs to be very strong. So that helps as well. So I would say to you, we're probably working on a program to kind of get in great shape to do this within two years. And I'm not then saying it would actually happen in two years because that depends on other external factors, but I'm planning to be ready uh, within two years. Yeah, you guys are moving super quick for sure. I was expecting you to say five, 10 years when you'd be ready. And what's your take on the market right now? What do you think about everything that's going on? Yeah, I mean, I'm naturally an optimist always. And I think you kind of have to be really when you're building a company. And I remember when the pandemic first happened and, you know, Sequoia sent out their famous black swan email and it kind of said, prepare for the worst. Imagine you can't raise again for three years, you know, and it was all, you know, very, very negative. And this was about kind of March or maybe it was May 2020. And there was basically two quarters of, you know, trending downwards. And then by the third quarter, things were reversing. And within really about nine months or, you know, nine to 12 months, we were at an absolute peak. And of course, the peak was November 2021. So that was only really a few months after that pandemic struck and companies were raising at 100 times their ARR. So it's a long way of saying, I do think that the market is fickle. I think lots of people will tell us why this time it's very, very different to then. And I think there are some differences. So you know, I, I would be cautious. I wouldn't be just, you know, completely bullish, but I do think the signs that things are already picking up and I can't predict a timescale, but I think by the second half of this year, things will be, you know, looking brighter. And, and I think by, you know, the middle of next year, it's going to be back to real positivity and probably not the peak that we saw in, you know, late 21. But I think overall, when you look at the NASDAQ, for example, it continues to go up and to the right on a long-term basis. Yeah, I'm kind of like, the way that I see it is after each downturn, there's always a boom. Yeah, I feel like we just had a free trial that you just explained what happened with COVID, it was the downturn, and then that was just in a super quick timeline. We don't know how long it's going to take this time, but there's always a boom right after where things really gets amazing. And the way that I see it is like, okay, we just have to survive through this, and I can't wait for when things start to go up again because always goes up again and i believe the companies that are able to prepare for that and use this time to improve they're going to do well because there's always an up after you know yes completely agree and on a long-term basis it doesn't matter what time frame you look at but if you just look at any time frame that's going to say 10 years or more then uh, is up and to the right so that the fundamentals are strong and I think, you know, not having, I haven't got long-term concerns, but I do think caution in the short term is right. And, you know, prepare to have a bit of a difficult time in the next year or so. Sure. So what book do you recommend for every SaaS founder? So I think Frank Slootman's book that he published recently from Frank Slootman from Snowflake, uh, where he is now, I think it's called Amp It Up. That is a really good read. And I think talks about the intensity that's required to uh, to launch a successful and sustain a successful SaaS company. So I'd recommend that. Amp it up. Nice. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the show and for sharing your story. And congratulations on your success. Uh, it's amazing how far you guys got. Thank you for having me, Phil. I enjoyed it. 
And if people want to follow you, learn more about you, what's the best way to do it? LinkedIn is best. So just go onto my LinkedIn page and uh, you can send me a message and connect there. Awesome. Thank you very much. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.